Our speaker, Elder Neil A. Maxwell of the Quorum of the Twelve, has a background of distinguished service to the public and to the Church. He earned a bachelor and master's degree in political science from the University of Utah. He has been awarded an honorary degree from Ricks College, a doctor of honorary doctor of law degree from the University of Utah, honorary doctor of letters degree from Westminster College, honorary doctor of law degree from BYU, and an honorary doctor of humanities degree from Utah State University. He served as a legislative assistant to Wallace F. Bennett, Senator of Utah. In 1967, Elder Maxwell received the Liberty Bell Award for public service from the Utah State Bar. In 1973, he was named Public Administrator of the Year by the Institute of Government Service at BYU. He has served as Chairman of the Utah Constitutional Revision Commission and is a member for eight years of the Utah State Board of Regents. He has written 24 books on religious topics and earlier authored many articles on politics and government for national, professional, and local publications. He currently serves as a director of Questar Corporation, Questar Pipeline, and the Deseret News Publishing Company. He began his adult service to the Church as a missionary in eastern Canada. He has served as a bishop in the University Sixth Ward at the University of Utah, as a member of the General Board of the YMMIA, a member of the Adult Correlation Committee, and as one of the first regional representatives of the Twelve. Elder Maxwell was serving as Executive Vice President of the University of Utah in 1970 when he was appointed as Commissioner of Education for the Church. In 1974, he became a General Authority when he was called as an Assistant to the Twelve. From 1976 to 1981, he was a member of the Presidency of the First Quorum of Seventy. He was called to the Council of the Twelve in July 1981. Elder Maxwell is married to the former Colleen Hinckley. They are parents of four children and have 21 grandchildren. On behalf of this large audience, we thank you, Elder Maxwell, for taking time from a very busy schedule to be with us this evening. We know you're a friend to the youth here and throughout the church. Elder Maxwell. It occurred to me as uh, President Merrill Oaks was kindly introducing me that I have now had the privilege of being introduced two times uh, uh, by different President Oaks in the Marriott Center. When his brother Dallin was president here a number of times and now by President Merrill Oaks. And I love them both. I did not know their father, but I did know their mother, Stella. She's a very special woman. And one can see her spiritual genes in Dallin Oaks and in Merrill Oaks. I'm delighted to be with you tonight and to be in the presence of President Rexley and his wife, Janet. My explanation for why we Many of us feel a sense of being a kindred spirit with people when we first get to know them is that our friendships with them are not friendships of initiation but of resumption. And I feel that way about President Sisterly and so many on the stand whom I've come to know. As we approach Easter, with all its glorious significance, brothers and sisters, we should rejoice in the great gift of immortality unearned and universally given. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. 
However, God's greatest gift, eternal life, will be given only to a comparative few. Those who receive Jesus' invitation, come, follow me. It is the invitation to discipleship about which I will speak tonight. The great gift of the resurrection, therefore, will be added upon by the exaltation inherent in eternal life. And that is contingent, however, upon the degree of our discipleship. Now, consistent with the lovely invocation tonight, I ask for your hearts as well as your ears, because we will consider some of the deep things of God. And the deep doctrines of the kingdom cannot be treated superficially with any degree of effectiveness, and they cannot be treated lightly. So I ask for your hearts as well as your heads. When Jesus took upon him the heavy atoning yoke in order to redeem all mankind by paying the agonizing price for our sins, he thereby experienced what he himself termed the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. Even the phrase makes the soul tremble. Jesus also volunteered to take upon him additional agony in order that he might experience and know certain things according to the flesh. These were things otherwise not in his purview, namely human sicknesses and infirmities, human griefs not associated with sin. Thus, as a result of his great atonement, Jesus was filled with unique empathy and with perfect mercy. In turn, however, he who bore the atoning yoke has asked us to take my yoke upon you and learn of me. The taking of Jesus' yoke upon us represents serious discipleship. I speak especially to those of you who are young and say to you, there is no greater calling, no greater challenge, but there is also no greater source of joy, both proximate joy and ultimate joy, than is found in the process of discipleship. This process brings its own joys and reassurances. Don't, however, expect the world to understand or to value your discipleship. They will not. They may admire you from afar, but they will be puzzled about the depth of your devotion. Therefore, shouldering the yoke of discipleship greatly enhances both our adoration and knowledge of Jesus, because then we experience firsthand, through our parallel but smaller-scaled experiences, a small instructive portion of what Jesus experienced. In this precious process, the more we do what Jesus did, allow our wills to be swallowed up in the will of the Father, the more we will learn of Jesus. This emulation enhances our adoration of Jesus. Simultaneously, in the same process, the more we become like Jesus, the more we come to know him. There may even be, more than we now know, some literalness in the assertion by him, when ye have done it unto the least of these, ye have done it unto me. We lack deep understanding of the implications of that remark of Jesus. 
as with so many things, he is telling us more than we are prepared now to receive. But back to submissiveness. The prophet Joseph Smith, writing redemptively to his rebellious brother William, said to William, God requires the will of his creatures to be swallowed up in his will. The prophet Joseph then pled with William to make, quote, one tremendous effort to overcome his passions and to please God. William didn't do it. Just as some of us fail to overcome our passions, and thereby we fail to please God. We're too busy pleasing ourselves. In contrast, meek Enoch reached a point in his discipleship, wrote Paul, when Enoch received a testimony that he pleased God. Think about that, brothers and sisters. For one to come to that point where he or she knows that they please God. One mistake we can make during this mortal experience, especially in an academic setting, is to value knowledge apart from the other qualities to be developed in submissive discipleship. Knowledge is very important. Its discovery, its preservation, its perpetuation is one reason we have this very special university. But being knowledgeable by itself, while leaving undeveloped the virtues of love and mercy and meekness and patience, is not enough for full discipleship. Mere intellectual assent to a truth, if it is unapplied, deprives us of the relevant personal experiences. It's like hearing a lecture without experiencing a lab. It's like, like being briefed on a field trip without having the field trip. There were probably orientation briefings in the pre-mortal world about how this mortal life would unfold for us. But the real experience is another thing. Thus, while knowledge is very important, standing alone, it cannot save us. I worry sometimes in various church classes that we get so busy discussing the doctrines that talking about them almost becomes a substitute for applying them. One cannot improve upon the sobering words of King Benjamin who said, Now if you believe all these things, see that you do them. Such is still the test. Deeds, not words, and becoming, not describing, are dominant in true discipleship. Of necessity, of course, we are to teach and learn the doctrines. We would be spiritually stranded without them, and likewise without the saving and exalting gospel ordinances. For in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest, and without the ordinances thereof, and the authority of the priesthood, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh. So it is that discipleship requires us all to translate doctrines, covenants, ordinances, and teachings into improved personal behavior. Otherwise, brothers and sisters, we will end up doctrinally rich but developmentally poor. The celestial attributes such as love and patience and mercy and meekness and submissiveness embody what we are to become. They are not just a litany of qualities to be recited. Awareness of them, even articulate awareness, without their application will not do. 
Furthermore, these same attributes cannot be developed in the abstract. The relevant experiences are required, even when you and I would try to avoid them. Moreover, our individual developmental schedules reflect God's timetable, not ours. His timetable, if followed, prepares us incrementally for the journey of discipleship and for going home. Any serious disciple yearns to go home to Heavenly Father and to be welcomed there by Jesus. But the prophet Joseph Smith declared, We cannot go where they are unless we become more like them in the principles and attributes and character they possess. Of the many restored truths, God has surely given us enough and to spare. Soberingly, however, we have been told that unto whom much is given, much is required. I hope, brothers and sisters, we feel the cutting edge of the word required. It is used instead of the milder expected. Neither does the Lord say it would be nice if the word is required. Bring us back once again to the submissiveness involved in discipleship. The gospel's rich and true doctrines combine to call, constitute a call to a new and more abundant life. But this is a lengthy process. It requires much time, the relevant learning experiences, the keeping of covenants, and the receiving of the essential ordinances, all in order to spur us along discipleship path of personal progression. In the journey of discipleship, we lose our old selves. The natural man and the natural woman are to be put off, and then we find ourselves becoming more saintly. One sees this saintliness all about him in the church. Quiet, blessed women, not particularly statusful, who are becoming saintly. And men, too. This is what should be happening in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There are even some noticeable and helpful tuggings. You feel them, I feel them at times, to remind us who we really are. As eternal beings living very temporarily in time, it is often much more than a whisper which tells us that we are strangers here and that home is someplace else. Walking and overcoming by faith is not easy. For one thing, the dimension of time constantly constrains our perspective. Likewise, the world steadily tempts us. No wonder we are given instructive words from Jesus about the narrowness and the straightness of the only path available to return home. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He also said, No one cometh unto the Father except by me. Jesus has laid down strict conditions. Now, we live in a world in which happily many others regard themselves as Christians. Many live rich and marvelous lives. But there are some who style themselves as Christians who admire but do not worship Jesus. Some regard him as a great teacher, but not as the great redeemer. Yes, Jesus is the generous Lord of the expansive universe 
But brothers and sisters, he is also the Lord of the narrow path. Some people forget the latter lordship. The ravines on both sides of that narrow path, which has much loose gravel on it, by the way, are deep and dangerous. Moreover, until put off, the shifting heavy burden of the natural man tilts us and sways us. It is unsettling. It is dangerous. Nor does the natural man or the natural woman go away quietly or easily. Hence, the most grinding form of calisthenics we will ever know involves the individual isometrics required to put off the natural man. Time and again, the new self is pitted against the stubborn old self. Sometimes, at least it's so with me, just when we think the job is done, at last, then the old self reminds us that he or she has not fully departed yet. A vital personal question for each of us, therefore, is, are we becoming steadily what gospel doctrines are designed to help us become? Or are we merely rich inheritors of an immense treasure trove of truth, but poor investors in the process of personal development, which is so essential to discipleship? Significantly, when the Lord described his purposes by saying, This is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, he uses the word work, even though it's a marvelous work. For us, certainly, becoming even as Jesus is, is work. Of necessity, this process requires the cross of discipleship to be taken up daily, not occasionally or seasonally. Sometimes as we commence taking up the cross, we ignore or neglect the first part of Jesus' instruction. He said, Deny yourselves and take up the cross daily and follow me. This self-denial is especially challenging in a world filled with so many sensual and secular stimuli. Greed and lust in your time, though they have been friends, it seems, forever, have never formed quite the cartel that they have formed now. It is global. It is profitable. Denying oneself has never been popular as a lifestyle, and it is certainly not today. Self-denial is even portrayed by many as too puritanic and too ascetic. Scoffers in this nation have acquired powerful pulpits from which they bray their message, which constantly puts down discipleship and encourages the natural man to think highly of himself and to please himself. What is it that we're to deny ourselves? The ascendancy of any appetites or actions which produce not only the seven deadly sins but all the others. Happily, self-denial, when we practice it, brings great relief. It represents emancipation from all the morning-after feelings, whether caused by adultery or gluttony. True disciples, being concerned with tomorrow, are very careful 
about today. Self-denial also includes avoiding that process in which we let our hearts become too set on any trivial or worldly thing. When we do that, we simply cannot learn the great lessons about the relationship of righteousness to the powers and the joys of heaven. There's a lot of talk currently in America about empowerment. Certainly economic and political slavery should concern us and rightly concern us. But what of being in bondage in other ways? What of emancipation from the enslavement resulting from so many subtle forms of servitude? Listen to these words of Peter. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. So many different things can overcome us and capture us. The fact is, therefore, that if we do not deny ourselves, we are diverted. Even if not wholly consumed with the things of the world, we are still diverted, and sufficiently so as to make serious discipleship impossible. As a consequence, when we are diverted, all the gifts and talents God has given us are not put meekly on the altar to serve others and to please God. Instead, we withhold to please ourselves. Diversion, therefore, is not necessarily gross transgression, but it is a genuine deprivation, especially if we consider what we might have become and what more we might have done to bless and to help others. Ironically, brothers and sisters, the natural man who is so very selfish is actually unselfish in that he reaches for too few of the things that bring real joy. He settles for a mess of pottage instead of eternal joy. By denying the wants and desires of the natural man to the degree that exists in each of us, we avoid this diversion, and it makes it easier for us to take up the cross of discipleship. Of course, the achievement of emancipation from various forms of bondage, when it occurs in our lives, brings no celebrating parades nor does it make the evening news. But it is the best of big news when we come off conqueror. So it is that discipleship, far from being ascetic, is to choose joy over pleasure. It is to opt for the things of eternity over the trendy and appealing things of the moment. Eventually, we become readied for the final moment of consecration, when gladly and completely we let our wills be swallowed up in the will of the Father. Jesus did this in Gethsemane and on Calvary. Not my will be done, but thine. What was his will? Take this cup from me. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Yet he yielded. Is it possible to have discipleship when one has no inner desires for discipleship? I don't know. I'm not sure we can plant desires <clears throat> in someone against their will. <clears throat> External exhortation of such individuals won't produce much change. For most of us, however, when the desire is there, it requires periodic sharpening 
of some outward circumstances. This is sometimes necessary to quicken any existing inner desires and to get us to act upon these. It was so with Abraham. Abraham desired a better life, more happiness, and the blessings of the holy priesthood. Outward circumstances, therefore, were a spur to Abraham's yearnings. But he had clearly and firmly the basic desires of discipleship. It's different in the case of prodigals, in the sense that turning away from the world and towards God, towards home, requires of them to make what I call the great pivot. This great pivot begins slowly and tentatively when the mind perceives what is in comparison with what might be. This represents the first tentative steps in the process of beginning to develop the mind of Christ. As you and I contemplate the varying degrees of progress we have made in our personal development, ponder, if you will, this bit of imagery. What if, brothers and sisters, our individual lack of inner spiritual symmetry were somehow visibly reflected in our outward physiology? How odd, swollen, and misshapen, or anemically underdeveloped some of us would appear. All intellect and no heart. Earnest and eager, but without a trace of empathy. Egoistic, with not a single sinew of mercy. Fixated on pleasing self, with little concern for neighbors. Ciphers as to substance, but perhaps with large mortal wardrobes. No substance. Perhaps this is the flip side of, look, <clears throat> the emperor has no clothes, in which one would say, look, the clothes have no emperor. The trappings people have that cover the absence of substance, of a spiritual nature, it's all about us in the world. Politically it's there, princes come, princes go, an hour of pomp, an hour of show. Of course, our actual degree of inward spiritual symmetry is somewhat hidden, at least until we get to know each other and to experience each other. So the lingering question you and I should have should not be, how many imperfections do I have? But rather, is my discipleship sufficiently serious that I am working patiently and steadily to overcome those weaknesses? perhaps changing some of them into strengths. Our outward selves are no better indicator sometimes of what we're really like than the mortal resumes which are feverishly circulated in the academic and business worlds. Usually these resumes give little reflection of character or conduct. Similarly, one's bibliographies seldom hint as to what kind of neighbor he actually is. If, however, discipleship is a daily duty, then this genuinely helps us in developing our spiritual symmetry and character. Then we would have much less concern, for instance, with the things of the moment. The banter in the cafeteria with peers or at the office roundtable with colleagues would so reflect. 
and likewise family discussions around the dinner table. We would also be much less concerned with our public image and what they think and much more concerned with having Jesus' image in our countenance. The one-upsmanship we often see, which is typically connected with intellectual prowess or other forms of prowess, are opposite to what discipleship calls for. Jesus' task is to lift us up, not to put people down. Given all you and I yet lack in our spiritual symmetry and character formation, no wonder God must use so intensively the little time available to develop each of us in this brief second estate. One's life, therefore, is brevity compared to eternity, like being dropped off by a parent for a day at school. But what a day! What a day! For the serious disciple, the resulting urgency means there can be few extended reveries and recesses and certainly no sabbaticals. All this in order to hasten God's relentless remodeling of each of us. I don't know how it is for you, parenthetically, but the reveries, the special moments come, but they are not extended. Soon the drumming of events even difficulties comes, so that we do not get stranded in the midst of reverie. There is so much to get done in the brief time we have in this mortal classroom. Considering what we are, therefore, compared to what we have the power to become, <clears throat> gives us great spiritual hope. Think of it this way. After all, there are some very serene blue lakes on this planet situated in cavities which once were red, belching volcanoes. Likewise, there are beautiful green tropical mountains. These have been formed from ancient hot extrusions. The parallel transformation of humans is much more remarkable than all of that, and much more beautiful, and much more everlasting. So it is, amid the vastness of his creations, God's shaping personalness is felt in the details of our lives, not only in the details of the galaxies and molecules, but much more importantly, in the details of our own lives. Somehow, brothers and sisters, God is administering these individual tutorials to us while at the same time he is overseeing cosmic funerals and births. For as one earth passes away, so another is born. It is marvelous that he would attend to us in the midst of those cosmic duties. Are we willing, however, to be significantly remodeled even by God's loving hands? Enoch was. He marveled over God's vast creations, but when deeply reassured, he fervently exclaimed, Yet thou art there. God is ever there. Significantly also, Enoch also exclaimed over three attributes of God's character. He declared that God is just, merciful, and kind forever. You and I are counting on those attributes every day, aren't we? And God's having those qualities to operate in our behalf 
should spur us to develop them in us to operate in behalf of others. God is very serious about the joy of his children. And why should we be surprised? God desires us to become more like him so we can come home to him. He is a perfect father. Where would we be, however, without God's long-suffering, given the divine sorrow that each of us here has caused our God and our Savior? What a divine comfort to know that when we get it all together, it will be mercifully said, Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, will remember them no more. No more important words have been said to any of us than to give us that reassurance. What ineffable love, what stunning patience, how wrenching it would be otherwise to be forever wincing, having been resurrected, over having displeased him. Oh, the marvel of his divine mercy and his plan of happiness. One day, like Enoch, we will, either as the man of Christ or the woman of Christ, know that we too please God. Discipleships in large capacity to serve will bring in large joys. No wonder we read lamentations from the Lord about those who do not accept his invitation to discipleship. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Or from the Book of Mormon, O ye fair ones, how could ye have departed from the ways of the Lord? O ye fair ones, how could ye have rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? The lamentations are a measure of the deep love Jesus has for us. They underscore the importance of our accepting his invitation to discipleship. Even so, Jesus prayed for us and all of his followers not to be taken out of the world, but instead that we might be kept from evil. We stay in the classroom till school is out, and there appears to be no other way. Therefore, it is left to each of us to balance contentment with what God has allotted to us in life with some divine discontent as between what we are in comparison to what we have the power to become. And discipleship creates this balance on the straight and narrow path. Only a few of you here will remember the old Popeye cartoons in which he proclaimed quite self-contentedly, I am what I am, and that's all that I am. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. We're beckoned by a different call, by the Master who asks us to become even as I am. Though most of you are young, I continue to be heartened by how far along so many of you are in your discipleship for your age. I mingle with you. I hear about you. Occasionally, it's my privilege to bless you and counsel you, and I become aware of your quiet spiritual triumphs. An example would be these next words, which were spoken recently by the husband of just a little over one year of Jennifer Craycroft Lewis. Her funeral was held several months ago here in Provo.
though grieving over his wife of such a short season. Brother Lewis said, as he spoke at the funeral, which took some courage, I have a testimony of this gospel. I know that the ordinances in the temple that I have partaken of with Jennifer are eternal. This gospel is so great that I will be with her again, and I will hold her flesh again as she is resurrected. I have a testimony of this church, and Jennifer has a testimony of this church, which she bore with me, that Jesus is the Christ. He was resurrected as we will be. He continued at the funeral saying, One of our favorite songs that we will now sing as a congregation is called to serve. I believe, this grieving husband said, as the scriptures have pointed out, that Jennifer, one of the best missionaries I ever had a chance to witness, is called to further service. She has been called home to preach the gospel to those who have not yet received it. I ask that this song be sung with meaning. Then, as invited, we sang Call to Serve. Weeping in the audience were several of Jennifer's missionary companions, her mission president's wife on the stand. We all wept and sang together, Call to Serve. I always love to hear that song sung, but I've never heard it sung like that before. Not far from here, on a new headstone, are these words. Jennifer Craycroft Lewis, September 13, 1968, January 26, 1994, called to serve. This is emblematic of the strength I see and feel in so many of you. And God's work here does proceed, here and on the other side of the veil, where those like Jennifer continue to build up the kingdom. Discipleship turns and gives us the lighting of our spiritual sensitivities. It increases the aliveness in each of us. Our sensitivities are enhanced, not diminished, with discipleship. It's part of what the scriptures call becoming alive in Christ because of our faith. There's a dullness and a sameness about sin. Discipleship is illuminated and varied. And with it, we learn to act for ourselves rather than merely letting ourselves be acted upon by circumstances. One of the dangers we face in discipleship is drifting. That can occur when we get weary and faint in our minds, to use Paul's phrase. This is one of the tragedies of failing to be serious disciples. Not that we become necessarily wicked, but rather that those who slip merely exist and are not truly alive. They are simply adrift. No wonder the doctrines must be kept pure. No wonder they must be taught again and again. Furthermore, some doctrines like faith and repentance are both principles and also vital processes. Other important doctrines like dispensationalism inform and instruct us, but they do not necessarily develop us personally. Paul warns to those of us who are on the path of discipleship 
to be diligent lest any root of bitterness spring up and trouble you. Travel on the straight and narrow path in company with other disciples, imperfect as we all are, side by side as we all are, means that there are ways in which we can become offended or even embittered. Given the imperfections of all of us in the church, offenses will come. Disappointments will occur. How we handle these is so crucial. We must be quick to prune any personal sprig of bitterness so that our wills can be truly swallowed up in the will of the Father. Among the things we put off when we put off the natural man and the natural woman are jealousy, resentment, and self-pity. Now may I close on a personal note, which I hope will illustrate a dimension of discipleship. I'm treating you as, as it were, as graduate students, not as lower division students in terms of discipleship. So I will speak to you of something we don't usually speak about in the church, but I would like to tonight. We sometimes speak of defining moments. These defining moments in our lives usually focus on a single episode, and they can be outwardly as well as inwardly quite dramatic sometimes. Yet these defining moments are usually preceded by small, subtle, preparatory moments. Moreover, the defining moments are then followed by many smaller moments which are shaped by the preceding and defining moment. Illustration. In a long ago May of 1945, there was such a moment for me on the island of Okinawa at age 18. There was certainly no heroism on my part, but rather a blessing for me and others during the shelling of our position by Japanese artillery. After repeated shellings trying to find us, their artillery finally zeroed in. They should have fired for effect. But there was a divine response to a frightened, selfish prayer, and the shelling halted. The prayer was accompanied by a pledge of a lifetime of service, a pledge which, though imperfectly, I have tried to keep. With this blessing and pledge, I was pushed deeper into discipleship without realizing what was happening or without realizing what service would be required. But I knew I had been blessed, and I knew that God knew that I knew. And I remembered the pledge after the war when my overseas savings gladly went to finance a mission, which, of course, was another step in the direction of discipleship. Now, having described for you that kind of somewhat dramatic defining moment, I want to certify to the smaller and more subtle moments. Unlike the roar and crash of artillery, followed by delivering silence. There are in these smaller moments the Lord's periodic whisperings to my mind. Over the years, and even on this very day, these guide me, they reassure me, they give me from time to time, in the words of the prophet, sudden strokes of ideas, and occasionally the pure flow of intelligence. 
these moments are as real for me as what happened on Okinawa. But they are inward things and often take the form of a directing phrase or even a one-liner. I have found with experience what I think you will find. The Lord gives more instructions than he gives explanations. It's probably ten years ago now. My secretary was not in that day. I received a letter from a missionary in the MTC asking if I would write his companion a letter of encouragement because his companion was determined to go home, having trouble with the language. Because my secretary was absent, I put the letter down on my desk and thought to myself, I'll I'll send a letter down in a couple of days. And the Spirit said, write the letter now. I borrowed a secretary who kindly typed as I dictated. I signed it and I said, I don't know what's going on, but please go mail this letter right now. Several days later, later, uh, uh, another letter came from the MTC from the same earnest companion who'd written me before saying, Dear Brother Maxwell, I think you ought to know what happened today. My companion had his bags packed. He was having his exit interview. And I went down to sit in the outer office and said, Please, Heavenly Father, let that letter come today. And then I ran down to wherever the missionaries get the mail. And there it was. And I ran back up and knocked on the door where he was having his interview and dropped the letter in his lap and said, I think you ought to read this before you go home. Dear Brother Maxwell, he's staying. Now, a few hours too late. The promptings that come often come in short, crisp phrases, impressing upon us a certain duty. They come in other ways to each of us. We know what's happening to us. We don't know all the implications of it. But God knows. It's a sacred process. We know more than we can tell other people. Not only for reasons of confidentiality, but what I will call contextuality. That is, those who are not a part of the process are not likely to value and understand the significance of what has happened. They're not apt to appreciate. I'm speaking now, too, of the whole process of inspiration and revelation, a metaphor. An inspired painter working on a large canvas does not ask patrons or friends to react to each brushstroke nor does he exclaim after each stroke of his paintbrush, well before the canvas reflects any emerging pattern. Yet each stroke the painter makes and registers on the canvas is a part of an inspired whole. Without those cumulative individual strokes, there would be no painting. But each stroke, if examined by itself, is not likely to be appreciated by itself, least of all by those who stand outside the process. Our personal spiritual experiences are much like this. They're personal, they're spiritual, and they are not usually shareable. Some may be, but it even takes inspiration to know when to share them. President Marion G. Romney, who combined wit and wisdom, had a saying he gave the brethren, meant, I'm sure, for the entire church. 
he said we'd have more spiritual experiences if we didn't talk so much about them. So as we ponder tonight discipleship and how God is in the details and in the subtleties and in the moments, defining moments and preparatory moments, he will reassure you, he will remind you, and sometimes, if you're like me, he will sometimes reprove you in a highly personal process, not understood or appreciated by those outside the context of the process itself. In the Revelations, he speaks of how the voice of his Spirit will be felt in our minds. For me, it's not a whole discourse. As indicated, it's a phrase or a sentence. He also says if we read his words, meaning the scripture, we will hear his voice. I am sure everybody here who's had the private moment of pondering and reading the scriptures will know that on occasion they come through in a clear, clarion way. And we know who it is who's speaking to us. And we've all had the experience of going over Scripture many times without having it register on us. And then all of a sudden, we're ready to receive it. And we hear the voice of the Lord through his words. So it is in the process of discipleship. There are more moments than we now use. Just as in terms of Christian service, there are more opportunities than we now use. Brigham Young taught this, quote, There is not a single condition of life and not one hour's experience, but what it is beneficial to all those who make it their study and aim to improve upon the experience they gain. I hope we realize that. We may fritter away the time, but it is always drenched with more opportunities for discipleship than we use. That's true, therefore, of the minutes and the hours and the moments. They are all incrementally defining moments. So as one considers the reality of the years, the days, and the moments to be used by each of us wisely, Instead of making discipleship a hectic, anxious thing, it actually causes us to be more calm, more meek and trusting, and more open to God's tutoring of each of us. He is in the details of your lives. He knows you perfectly, just as Jesus knew the woman of Samaria whom he quizzed and said, did she believe in the Messiah? She said, I know that Messiah cometh, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said, I that speak unto thee am he. And she went back later to her village, all excited, and said she'd found the Messiah. And then significantly, she said to the villagers, he told me everything I ever did. He knows you. He loves you. He has asked you, Come, follow me. And in that majestic sense, each of us here tonight has been called to serve, of which I testify in the holy name 
of Jesus Christ. Amen.